We began the attack at daybreak, crossing the frozen snow-covered field. As we got about 50 yards out, all hell broke loose, and the Jerrys laid down a field of fire with machine guns. Bullets were flying everywhere. I kept moving forward and firing short bursts from my BAR. I kept hitting the ground, firing, getting up again to advance. I passed by several fallen comrades but could not stop to help because of the hail of fire. I finally reached the tree line where there was some protection from trees and brush. I could not visibly locate the enemy as they were pretty well concealed. I looked around to see where the rest of our platoon was and was shocked to see only one other GI who I'd never seen before. We were all alone in this heavily wooded area with machine gun and small arms fire whizzing over our heads." End quote. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The opening quote was from 19-year-old Thomas Krebs of the 99th. He was describing the surprise attack from the Germans which could be considered for the rest of days as the first day of the Battle of the Bulge. Thanks to the awesome suggestion by listener Brian McEnery, this is my first foray into a World War II episode. I had originally decided that I was going to keep it clinical, just the facts, figures, dates, but that seems to make it just another entry in another history book that just gets skimmed over. I know, because that was me. It wasn't until I started listening to the actual men who fought in the Battle of the Bulge that the military event had real depth. So forgive me if you were hoping for a clean-cut military breakdown of dates, advancements, and scoreboard. This battle was so much more than that. This was the beginning of the end for the Germans' rampage. It was the drawing a line in the sand, or rather, snow. And even though the Germans pushed through it, the Americans pushed right back, held their ground, and, at the cost of many lives, kept the war from crossing the ocean into America and saved Europe from oppression. But the soldiers would recall, quote, In the Battle of the Bulge, the snow was red with blood, end quote. With the end of the Battle of the Bulge, it paved the way for all of the Allied forces to attack Germany from all sides, bringing a final end to Nazi Germany when the Soviet Union was able to advance and shut down Berlin and end World War II. But I digress. Let me step back and tell you about the brave soldiers and their heroism holding the line at Battle of the Bulge. In December of 1944, the Allied forces had freed France and defeated Germany in Normandy. Everyone believed that the war was about to come to an end, but Adolf Hitler had other ideas. He wanted to divide the British Army and the American Army by capturing Antwerp and cut off their supply lines in order to force peace negotiations in Axis's favor with both English and American separately. The German losses were so heavy up to this point after a series of defeats that they really couldn't afford another attack, and he was counseled as such. But 
Hitler felt that if they could give one more push to divide the Allied troops, he could reach Germany and gain more ground. At this time, the American front line was pretty straight, holding their ground at the edge of the Ardennes forest. It was the push down the center that created the bulge in the line. It literally looked like, remember that playground game, Red Rover? And a group went right for the weak spot. But surprisingly, all the kids held on? Well, yeah, that. Soldier Ed Klein would recall, quote, It was our job to flatten out the bulge, or at least not let Hitler through, hold the line at all cost, end quote. This became known as the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler's last stand. Spoiler alert, he lost. The Battle of the Bulge ruined the German army to the point that they would not be able to recuperate, but the month-long battle to keep him from it was one of the most deadliest and a true image of bravery and determination for the American and British forces. Germany took months preparing for this attack and planted spies on American lines. They donned American uniforms and would sabotage road signs, train tracks, cut wires, and pass on false information, allowing the Germans time to bring in their 250,000 troops and 1,000 tanks even closer. And then they waited. From December 5th through December 15th, no one had heard anything on the movement of the German army. The Americans who were placed at the front of the line were few, fatigued, and since everything was quiet, had no way of knowing what was coming. The Germans knew that the Americans' air force would be a major threat, so they were patient enough to wait until the weather was working in their favor. It became known as the Ghost Front. Even the Allies and soldiers themselves give Hitler props for this final attack. It was doomed to fail, sure, but the tactics involved were a mastery of warfare. The Germans went underground as far as no transmissions, no movement, allowing everyone to let their guard down. Eventually, the temperatures dropped. The snow began to fall, and it turned into one of the worst snowstorms in decades. It was just what they were waiting for. Luckily for the Germans, the sky was gray, and it was too dangerous for the American planes to take off. They knew it was their moment, and it worked. The Americans were greatly outnumbered and outpowered. On December 16th, at 4 a.m., the German troops and tanks barreled into American territory, blasting into everything. The Americans were caught completely off guard. In most cases, all they could do was retreat. Many of those who had to face the initial attack were fatigued soldiers looking for a place to rest, having just come from another battle, or the new recruits who had either just graduated basic training or had just been sent over. One soldier who would eventually go on to win the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart, Arthur Spaulding of the 80th Infantry, would tell us about his first few days. He complained about being cold and uncomfortable. He says about his trip to the front lines of the Bulge, quote, We traveled in the middle of the night, 100 miles in two days. It was snowing. It was about 10 degrees and we were in an open jeep. You know the floorboards of jeeps are made of steel and very quickly became quite cold. That cold penetrated the combat boots we had on, and pretty soon we didn't feel anything from our waist down, end quote. He arrived on December 16th, and with no time to waste, his troop had to set up their chemical mortar guns in rows that spread out for miles. 
These weapons were used to deliver a potent explosion. It held 10 pounds of TNT followed by a spray of white phosphorus to create a smoke shield. They are lighter than cannons weighing about 25 pounds and have thinner walls made of cheaper metal so it's able to carry more explosives and or chemicals but it operates from a pretty short range. Spalding says, quote, In our first combat mission, the gun that was set up next to mine had a shell that blew up in the barrel of the mortar, killing or wounding the entire crew that was attending that gun. It was a very bad introduction to what followed, I must say. End quote. Another veteran would say, quote, We dug in and the Germans were coming up on the other side with tanks and half-tracks and then the fog set in. It was warm and then cold. We could dig in the mud, but then it froze and it got real bad, end quote. There was some chatter about the advancement of German troops, but no one realized that it was to be a major advancement. Fred Kuhn recalls, quote, I was 19. Here I was. There was a two-and-a-half-ton truck and it was loaded with bodies, dead bodies, and they were all our soldiers, end quote. Another remembers, quote, out of a company of 150 men, 11 were left, end quote. This would be the day America lost over 10,000 soldiers. And this would only be day one of the bloodiest land battle American soldiers fought in World War II. The Germans certainly made a powerful entrance into the Ardennes and took out an alarming amount of soldiers, and the Americans were forced to retreat but they didn't count on the small American divisions along the way that would surprise everyone, like Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Knopp. On December 17th, only hours after the Germans broke through the American lines, he was left with unprepared soldiers and had to fend off hundreds of Germans heading their way. General Walter Robertson, divisional commander, sent word, quote, Get every gun, man, and whatever you can to prepare the last-ditch defense of command post. Enemy tanks have broken through and are on the road to Bullingen now, end quote. He grabbed cooks, drivers, secretaries, MPs, anyone who happened to be close at the time, put a weapon in their hand, and pointed them in the direction of the enemy. They held off the Germans in waist-deep snow until reinforcements could arrive. Also, on that same day, not a victory, but just a little further west, the German soldiers of Kampgrufa Piper ordered around 150 soldiers that had been captured or surrendered near Malmedy to be grouped together, looted, and then shot. The prisoners panicked and tried to run, and some escaped. The dead were left where they fell. The 43 that survived were able to tell of the horrifying events that happened on the field. Bill Merrikin was one of the few survivors. He recalls having to lay perfectly still after being shot two times by the machine guns. Quote, I turned around and fell flat on the ground, and I was shot twice in the back. I lay perfectly still. End quote. The survivors would whisper to one another while waiting for an opportunity to escape and find help. They could hear the various German regiments walking and bringing the tanks through the area. The men were piled up, and sometimes the passers-by would shoot at their bodies for sport. One man, suffering from his wounds, rolled onto Bill. At the time, another German walked past and saw the man moving and fired his pistol. Bill recalls, quote, It went through him and then hit me in the knee, but I didn't scream and holler, I didn't say a word, end quote. When it got quiet 
and those who were still alive began whispering and planning to make a break for it. Bill knew that he'd have to move soon, or he wouldn't be able to. So he and about forty others got up and attempted to run across a huge field. They were spotted, and the Germans opened fire. Bill was able to make it across the field and hide out in a shed of a nearby home. It was later discovered that even though some of the soldiers in the original massacre were shot by machine guns, additionally most were discovered with bullet holes in their skulls, and ten bodies were discovered with fatal blunt trauma injuries to the head, made most likely with the rifle handle smashing the skull. A tank driver who remains nameless would say, quote, I know when we got up there that first night it was snowing so bad. It was so cold. We stopped on this road, and I looked over at this field. It was kind of moonlight. I could just see, he paused, tearing up, I could just see lumps out on that field. I got out of my tank and went over and scraped the snow off. It was these dead soldiers that the Germans had captured and mowed them down with a machine gun. That happened probably four hours before we got there, and the bodies were already frozen, covered with snow, end quote. And also, over in Wherewith, Belgium, the same thing was happening to 11 men who had run from the Ardennes trying to get back to American safety and were invited to take refuge in one of the only nine homes in this tiny little town. A wife of a German soldier snitched, and the 11 African-American soldiers were taken to a nearby field where they were beaten, tortured, and eventually shot. Their bodies were not discovered for another six weeks. It turned out that the Waffen-SS, which is an elite group of soldiers that grew from a single regiment of Hitler's finest assassins to a massive collection of 38 divisions by the time World War II broke out, and had been killing U.S. soldiers all day, starting at Bullingen, killing dozens of soldiers and civilians, and plowing their way through the Baugnes crossroads using the same techniques. They were able to steal precious fuel and always at the cost of needless deaths. Reports that the Waffen-SS were killing surrendered troops as they went caused the commander of the 328th Infantry Regiment to issue the Fragmentary Order 27, which stated, quote, No SS troops or paratroopers will be taken prisoner, but will be shot on sight. End quote. The frozen bodies of the massacres were not able to be recovered until after January of 1945, when they were then removed and sent home for burial. Side note, in the U.S. Senate investigation into the soldiers of the Kampfgruppe Piper, it was discovered that up to 749 U.S. prisoners of war had been murdered. The number varies when you add in or subtract the number of civilian murders, which was over a hundred. Three German commanders were held responsible for the murders. Piper was sentenced to death during the trials, but it was reduced. He was eventually released and moved to France, but the strangest thing happened. Not long after he set up residence in France, his home was burnt to the ground with him inside. Also, side note, if you were curious, Bill Merrikin did escape. He made his way to a woodshed and was discovered by the woman who owned the property. He begged her for help, but she couldn't speak English. Figuring he didn't have anything to lose, he jotted down a note and asked her to take it to any American wearing his type of uniform. You can only imagine this kind of charades going on while he's bleeding and freezing on the dirt floor of this shed. Anyway, the woman is terrified of the soldiers, so she hands the note to a blonde-haired neighbor who is 14 
and he luckily takes it to one of the American stations there, and help is sent to our passed-out soldier. The two were able to meet fifty years later, and Bill was finally able to thank the young man who saved his life. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here from Bag of Bones Podcast. Since Stampsland Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. (laughs) I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life, or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month, and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. As the World War II veterans describe in such detail the events of the battles, what they recall most was the cold. Ed Klein would say, quote, I don't know which was worse, the enemy or the cold. We were ill-equipped, ill-prepared, we didn't have adequate clothing. We didn't have enough in the way of socks to protect our feet. The shoe packs that we wore created perspiration between our toes, and when we slept in the foxholes at night, you develop ice between your toes. If you did that long enough, you could find yourself in very serious trouble, end quote. Another would recall, quote, The biggest enemy was the cold weather. I've had my socks frozen to my feet, ice in my boots, and when you get wet, you just can't dry them, end quote. Robert Smathers shared, quote, The cold caused as many casualties as the fighting did. There'd be times when we'd have to move at night. Ice would freeze to your face. You'd be moving along, scraping the ice off, end quote. Many times they would have to march after dark, which was especially dangerous as the temperatures would drop to deadly levels and there was no protection. Quote, there were times I'd fall asleep in my Jeep and I didn't know if I'd wake up. You could freeze to death and not know it. End quote. Don Burgett of the 101st Airborne recalls, quote, We lived out there, no overcoats, no gloves, no overshoes, at 10 and 20 degrees below zero, 24 hours a day, and no fires. We were outside in the woods, end quote. Frank Kaflish remembers, quote, It was so cold in these snow-covered fields, and there were a lot of casualties, both ours and the Germans, and they'd be frozen in these grotesque positions. This is what we saw. This is what I still see, end quote. Another said, quote, You got to the point where you think you just can't take it any longer, end quote. The bloodiest part of the bulge would take place around St. Viet. German commanders Piper and Sepp Dietrich, who were leading the deadliest divisions of the Waffen-SS, had literally murdered their way this far, as mentioned before, and they were determined to take this town. 
St. Vite was a specific junction that they had to get through because it was surrounded by dense forests and wide waterways. They needed to break through on the roads that all intersected through St. Vite. The Americans kept slowing them down, causing them to have to reroute and using up valuable time, which allowed the Americans to regroup and send the troops from the 106th who have only been in Europe for 15 days. But more than 6,000 casualties, deaths, wounded, or prisoners would be counted before the Americans would lose it to the Germans. It was considered one of the largest surrenders of the war. The more than 12,000 freezing cold prisoners of war began a march into Germany. Quote, Tremendously frightening experience to see your buddies that are killed, see all the bodies laying there, and to view the casualties for boys that we had trained with. Boys we were very close to finally have to cover them with a poncho. It is a heartbreaking experience. St. Vite was considered a defeat, of course, but because the Americans were holding their ground, until the command came down from the top to surrender, it caused the Germans valuable time and used up a vast amount of their supplies, which we can see the advantage of that a bit later. If there can be one sub-battle that is to stand out in the major Battle of the Bulge, that would have to be the holding of the town of Baston. This was another key crossroad in eastern Belgium that was important to keep the Germans from getting a hold of because it would allow them to obtain vital supplies and fuel. Quote, that first night when we arrived, it was quiet. The next day, it broke loose. By that night, we couldn't get out. End quote. The first round of troops marched in and had no idea what was about to go down. Quote, we dug our first foxhole and were almost immediately under attack by the artillery and the German tanks. End quote. The town of Baston is shaped like a wagon wheel. It has a main road in and out of it, but then it also has pivotal spokes coming out of its center. Don Burgett of the 101st Airborne explains, quote, It was a primary place because the Germans had to move their weapons through there, their ammunition and fuel and so on, and they also had to pull their wounded back. And those seven roads, it's a bunch of razorback ridges. There's no way to travel well. So they had to have Bastogne because it was the key to all roads coming in together and going out together, end quote. So while the soldiers knew their orders, as Burgett recalls, quote, you will take and hold Bastogne and there will be no withdrawal and there will be no surrender. That's how important it was. We would fight to the last man, end quote. With the way the town was set up and the Americans setting up for battle, it wasn't long before the Germans knew they couldn't get through, so they'd have to go around. But soon, the Americans were surrounded on all sides. The first set of troops suffered great losses. It came down to a ragtag, mixed-matched group of 26 men, the only survivors from their various squads. The 44th Engineer Battalion retreated from the west and moved into town, bringing the numbers up to about 500. D. Paris recalls his group being stranded there and witnessed, quote, Our combat commander from my division lost all their officers, except one major, end quote. The 82nd and the 101st Airborne, under the temporary command of Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe, were sent to help. They traveled in sleet and snow while driving at night, even using headlights. While this didn't usually happen, making them an easy target, they knew they had to get to Bastogne quickly to help to relieve the men there. 
They had orders, and they were not to retreat under any circumstances. Quote, we got to hold Bastogne, hold the town. We had to stay and fight them, end quote. And the Germans didn't give them any rest. They were sure they were at the brink of victory over control of the town. It's now December 20th. It's freezing cold, and those who weren't injured from bullets were wounded from trench foot and frostbite. They were low on supplies, protection, ammunition, and food. The Germans were still on a steady attack and would creep up to the enemy lines wearing white cover so they were difficult to see across the fields. A soldier from the 42nd Infantry told of a time when he was trying to get his crew to move at dawn and he was getting the truck ready. He saw about 200 men wearing white uniforms come out of the woods. He heard them speaking German so he rushed back into the house where his squad was hiding. Quote, the Lord was good to us. He gave us a two-story house the only two-story house in the area. We tried to wake the squad up, but they didn't want to wake up. The Germans started shooting into the house. They got up in a hurry. We were running upstairs, and one of our crew was already up there firing out the window. Just as he looked down at me and said, I got another one, bang, right in the middle of his forehead. We fought the whole day from up there, end quote. The Americans were able to secure bedsheets and other linens from the homes to camouflage themselves as well. The 101st created a more secure perimeter around the town to try and block the bombardment from the German attacks. Their medical company had been destroyed. They had no medical supplies, and the men would try to doctor each other's wounds as best they could. The American soldiers were outnumbered five to one, but they just kept holding on in the worst winter in decades. A soldier of the 101st would recall, quote, in 30 days, we had 84,000 casualties, end quote. Jack Morgan would regret, quote, you'd get to where you look out for yourself. You hate it and you don't like it, but you have to shut it out of your mind. You had to keep alert to what was going on around you. Of course it bothers you. I lost several friends, end quote. Captain Richard Winters would later recount of his time in Bastogne, quote, when a man was wounded, we felt glad for them. We felt happy for them. He had a ticket to get out of there, and maybe a ticket to go home. And when we had a man who was killed, we found that he was at peace, and he looked so peaceful, and we were glad that he found that peace." Meanwhile, the Germans are feeling pretty good about themselves. They have the Americans to the breaking point. They decide to move forward the long way around, with the majority of their tank divisions leaving only one regiment behind to finish the job. Capture Bastogne. They feel that they can force a surrender. <laughs> Nuts to that. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. 
click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. On December 22nd, four Germans appeared at the American line holding a white flag. They brought a message to give to the commander. It reads in part, quote, The fortune of war is changing. This time, the USA forces in and near Bastogne have been encircled by strong German armored units. There is only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation, that is, the honorable surrender of the encircled town, end quote. It goes on to say how now they are on a time limit, and if they don't comply, the German army will give the order to kill all the USA troops, so on and so forth. The four men delivering the message were willing to be blindfolded and taken to the leading officer, which was General Anthony McCullough. The general happened to be sleeping at the time, so the story goes, and his clerk brought the message in to him. The clerk repeated the message, and McCullough responded with, the Germans want us to surrender? Aw, oh, nuts. And when it came time to actually deliver the written response, McAuliffe searched for just the right words. But his team decided that his first response would do the trick. So he wrote back, NUTS, in all caps, with two exclamation points, to give to the German messengers. When they requested a translation of the term NUTS, they were told it means approximately the same as go to hell. This one story became the rally cry to give the fatigued troops the energy to keep pushing, keep fighting, keep holding. And all the while they attempted to hold the line, knowing that General Patton was bringing his tank reinforcements. As for that night, in retaliation, the Luftwaffe bombers attacked Bastogne, killing 21 of the already dwindling numbers of troops. Both sides were exhausted, but the German tanks advanced and the Americans defended. The Germans had tanks that were far superior than the American versions. They were larger, they held more powerful ammunition, and were constructed in a way that it made it hard to stop them. Quote, the German tanks were called Tiger tanks. They had heavy armor in the front at an angle, and the armor must have been nearly a foot thick, and our shells would just bounce off that angle in the front. If they got one of our tanks similarly, our tanks would be out of business, end quote. Quote, if you hit a German tank, it was like hitting it with a tennis ball. It just bounced right off, end quote. Dominic Mariano recalls, quote, it would take three or four of our tanks to take out one of their tanks, end quote. But they would get clever in fighting the tanks. They didn't have the ammunition to hit them straight on, perhaps but they were able to sneak up alongside them and put mortar in the wheel thread, causing them to be immobile. They had to get creative. The one thing that Americans had in retaliation was the German tanks could only travel about 15 miles per hour and used a ton of gas. Christmas Day of 1944 was not remembered as a happy occasion. They were under heavy bombardment and the freezing temperatures were relentless. But McAuliffe boosted morale as best he could by sending along a message saying something along the lines of, Merry Christmas, but why call it Merry? You're low and you're cold and you're away from home. But he pointed out that they were all doing an important job of trying to stop the Germans from moving toward Antwerp. One veteran recalled, quote, 
It's interesting. I've been fortunate enough to come home and had a family and celebrated so many happy Christmases, but that's the one I remember most. Actually, the most meaningful to me. I guess it was the fact that we were so close to death and we came out of it. End quote. But now the day after Christmas, that was reason to celebrate. General George Patton's Third Army arrived with a long trail of tanks and drove straight at the attackers, breaking the lines that had Americans trapped. One infantry soldier would recall, quote, The thing that helped us so much at the end of three days was Patton's prayer, and the skies cleared, and the 761st All-Black Tank Battalion came to support us. The lead tank man from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, opens the hatch, stands up, and we all looked at him from the deep snow. His black face was the most beautiful thing we had ever seen. And he said, Y'all need some help? Oh, I tell ya, did we ever. End quote. The 761st would be the first African-American tankers to see combat in the U.S. Army. They earned the nickname the Black Panthers because they would be the troop that would face off against the German Panther tanks and go in full force proving they were men of determination and valor. And for 183 consecutive days, they would be at the head of General Patton's Third Army. The 761st helped split the line of the Germans in three places, giving the infantry some much-needed relief. Ralph Mitchell of the 101st Airborne realized, quote, Results of the isolated cases in which American infantry fought German armed forces point out how important the attached package of tanks and tank destroyers was to the 101st. Without them, even the bravest of infantry actions would have been no match for the tanks. The infantry fighting alone would have lost Bastogne early in the battle. End quote. One veteran recalls, quote, Patton never stopped. He never rested. Our blood, his guts, was the saying that went around. He had guts enough to send you somewhere. He didn't care if it cost us our blood or not. He wanted to get things done. I guess that's the way he did it. End quote. On December 27th, the weather finally cleared, allowing 2,000 Allied airplanes to be launched. They were able to immediately bring the much-needed supplies to forces at Bastogne. Quote, one of the greatest sights I ever seen in my life, the sun came out, and it wasn't long after that we heard the drolling of airplanes, and there they were, the C-47s dropping supplies, these huge bundles of supplies, they were dropping them into the fields, end quote. The improved weather conditions also permitted air attacks on the German forces and their supply lines, which sealed their fate. The limited aircraft the Germans had were mostly used to drop bombs on Bastogne. Quote, I remember airplanes, liberators, B-17s, B-38s from horizon to horizon, and we cheered because we knew exactly what the Air Force was going to do for us on the ground, and they did it, end quote. Another quote, the fog started to lift, and here come our Air Force, dive bombing. I tell you, I've never been so glad to see anyone in my life. We knew what was down there. Tanks, end quote. So all these supplies came in, and they were able to hold the Germans from all sides. Their spirits renewed, and food in their belly, they were able to continue on. Quote, the odds were so overwhelming, I don't know how we survived it. If we had not been able to hold Bastogne, the Germans might have been successful. 
it was that important, end quote. By January 8th, the Germans had begun to pull back. They had nothing left. Quote, we finally drove them out at a big cost, end quote. When the historians look back at the finite details of the battles, and they do, believe me, they can all agree that at least one thing worked in the Americans' favor. The Germans simply ran out of gas. The veterans who talked about this aspect of bringing the draining battle of the bulge to an end loved that it was something so simple, so obvious. But it was the American willpower and the tenacious defense of the city of Bastogne that would stop the Germans from getting their much-needed supplies. Wayne Cleveland said, quote, Hitler figured that he could break through us and get through the Meuse River. He could get enough gasoline there. He had to go to Antwerp, because the only gasoline was in the trucks and the tanks. It was all they had. We stopped them. They never got to Antwerp, the big supply place where things came in, end quote. Fred Clater simplifies their victory by saying, quote, What really stopped the Germans was that they ran out of gasoline. All of a sudden, your tanks are useless when you run out of gasoline, end quote. Don Schroyer says, quote, That was the key. You can have a tank, you can have a plane, you can have motorcycles, you can have a car, but if they don't have gas, mm, you've got them, end quote. The Germans, by this point, had no air support and were unable to counter the air attacks, and by this time, the tanks and trucks were out of gas and their supplies were desperately low. After the Battle of the Bulge was halted, they decided to push the Germans back. Here is where Patton and Eisenhower would differ in opinion. Patton had had enough. He wanted to cut them off and finish things then and there. But Eisenhower, who commanded the entire army, decided that it was best to push them back, lengthening the war for three more months. Quote, Patton had one word, go, end quote. Another quote said, we actually lost more of our men on the way back out of town than we did in defense of it, end quote. Another quote said, serving under Patton, that's a psychological experience that I will never forget. He would turn up at the darndest places with his pearl-handled pistols. You didn't too often see many generals up at the front, end quote. The official end of the Battle of the Bulge is written as January 25th. This is when the Germans were stopped, and the pushback was complete. Quote, the Germans had nothing left. We took their last big hurrah, so to speak, end quote. Another quote, we lost an awful lot of men. This was the largest land battle in the United States has ever engaged in, and anybody who lived through it was lucky. He had somebody upstairs on his side, end quote. Oliver North says in War Stories about this heroic battle, quote, during the Battle of the Bulge, the sheer courage of the American fighting men prevented a disaster and enabled a victory. This epic triumph wasn't achieved by the brilliance of military strategists. It was won by hundreds of thousands of original GIs, in their foxholes, exhausted, low on ammunition, hungry, freezing, but simply refusing to give up." End quote. As we close this episode at the Allied victory of the Battle of the Bulge, I wanted to end it with a few of the quotes from the same veterans who participated in this pivotal battle so you can hear the patriotism through their words. I know I won't do it justice, but for them, it wasn't just a job. They were fighting for their country. 
They were fighting for the next generation and the next and the next so we could see our flag flying high for all the world to witness. Quote, As a veteran, the American flag is a symbol that many, many, many men made the ultimate sacrifice, and it will always fly. End quote. Quote, the American flag is the symbol of our nation, and it's the one thing we can rally around. End quote. Another quote, It means the world to me. It's the best-looking flag you could ever see. And when that thing is waving, man, it makes your whole body feel good. End quote. Quote, It's a symbol of something I've been loyal to all my life. End quote. Quote, I am a part of that flag. That's my blood the blood of the soldiers that fought for it to be raised in every city in America. It's the symbol of sacrifice of mankind. It's a symbol of freedom. So many people have died for this flag, end quote. Quote, it may be intangible for some, but for us it's real. The cost was awesome. Don't let them forget, end quote. And this is where my job comes in. This episode should not only play out the battle and its tactics and strategies, but also bring up the valiant courage of our men who fought in it, for they are truly heroes. At the time of World War II, these battles were fought face-to-face, hand-to-hand. The horrors were real, every single day. Our country paid the price of many lives who believed in the future of a great nation. I don't want their stories lost. Quote, They ask if I came home a hero. And I say no. The heroes are over there. They died for me. That's how I think about it. End quote. Francis Walsh says, quote, A lot of times, even now, I'll think about it. I'll be laying in bed. These kinds of things just come back into your mind. You just have to push them away. But you never forget. You never, ever forget. End quote. We'll end as we began with Thomas J. Krebs having the first and final words. He says, quote, The capture of La Rumiere was a major victory for the L Company and prevented further penetration of the German army in its drive to split the Allied forces. After this battle, I was very happy to be alive. Most people don't understand what it's like to be a soldier in the infantry rifle company. With all the training, I was not prepared for this experience. Nothing can prepare you for the reality of war. Under hellish conditions, it was a life-changing experience. One I will never forget. End quote. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. And thank you to Brian McHenry for the request. Be sure to join us next week for another listener-requested topic. I can't wait to share it with you. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.